yet one earthly reason I was the guilty He was the sacrifice I was the summoned from the throne up in the sky to purchase my pardon not even the angels could die the only provision for my freedom was destined to be the sweet lamb of glory and his only reason was me I was a reason that one earthly reason I was the for that number and uh, thankful that Jesus Christ, that uh, he was willing to come and leave heaven's glory for me and for you. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, Pastor, so- or Pastor Saunders. Pastor Ferguson is away today as uh, uh, Brother uh, Fer- uh, Burden was uh, sharing with you. He's in Ludington today. Today's the 15th anniversary of the church that we planted there 15 years ago. I was sharing with my Sunday school class this morning a little bit about the details of that. We had a family, Bruce and Angie Darren, that moved to Ludington and just was struggling to find a church that they just really felt a part of and felt comfortable in and where they could get the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God. There are several churches over there, but they kept calling back and saying, Pastor, you know, we're, we're kind of struggling here. You think maybe that uh, we might be able to plant a church over in this area? And Pastor and I began to pray about that. 
at that time. And, uh, and so we began to make some contacts and look into some things. And the Bible study was formed over there. And they had about uh, six, eight, ten people at different times in, involved in the Bible study. And we'd drive back and forth for that. And, uh, and of course, uh, if you're going to have a church, you've got to have a preacher. And we began praying about the preacher. And uh, and uh, Lord laid on my heart to, to call Brad Shandonette. And uh, the Shandonettes have now been there for 15 years. It's kind of interesting that day that I called him. We were working with Baptist Church Planning Ministries in the planning of that church. And Brother Jessup at the time, he's now gone on to glory. But Brother Jessup said, hey, before we can uh, institute, uh, establish the date for this church plant, we have to have a pastor. And uh, so uh, I called, uh, the Lord laid on my heart to call Brad. And I called him. He was there at Pensacola to finish up a master's degree. And, and Brad and I got talking. And I said, hey, Brad, share with me what's on your heart. What, what, what do you think God's got for you in the days that are, that are, that are to come? You know, you're going to be graduating. And he said, well, you know, we have considered possibly an associate's or a youth ministry. And uh, he said something else we've prayed about. We're not, we're not close to the idea of pastoring a church. And I said, well, what, what, what's really on your heart? He said, well, to be honest with you, Pastor, what's really on our heart is we believe God would have us to plant a church. I said, okay, now let me tell you why I called. And that was really the, uh, the founding of uh, the pastor for that church and ministry. And, and Brad and Gina, two young people that grew up here at Trinity Baptist, know our ministry quite well. Many of you know them. The Shandonette family is here. Um, they've now been there for 15 years. And I'll be honest with you, the ministry on the west side of the state is far different than the ministry on this side of the state. The people over there respond differently to the word of God and respond differently to Christianity and so forth. And it's just... Uh, if we needed an individual that was going to be there, just was going to plod day after day, day after day, just take it a day at a time, a step at a time. And, and that's what Brad has done and doing a great job. The wonderful thing about the ministry there, too, other than the pastor, is the fact that God gave them the building from their very, very first Sunday. And the uh, Lord led us as Trinity Baptist Church to, to finance a building for them, which they've taken over the payments of and have been making the payments. They almost have their own building paid off now. They've got some property there, and, and God's just doing some wonderful things. And so it was a thrill upon my heart. To, I talked to Brad at uh, the Harvest Fest this year, and he was sharing with me his excitement and enthusiasm and invited Pastor Ferguson to come over and, and to preach for them on this special day. And I trust that uh, you, you today will rejoice with them as well. Here in First Peter chapter uh, 2, Peter has... Uh, is writing here to uh, the Christians, the believers that have been scattered abroad because of great persecution that's come upon the church. And he's writing this letter here at the beginning of chapter 1. He writes a salutation or a greeting and, and, and introduces himself to them and then talks about to them, of the, reminding them of the great inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about because of that inheritance, we need to live... Uh, as believers, unspotted, unblemished by this world. The influences of this world that, that can be heaped upon us that in, in the difficult times and trials that we face, that we might live above the world, that we might be a light in a dark world. And, and the only way that we can do that is through the Word of God. And he assures them there in conclusion, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, he talks about the fact that we have a more sure word of prophecy, the Word of God that we can hold on to, that we can claim. And now he's going to talk to them about something else. Oftentimes, uh, in a message like this that I'm preaching tonight, they would, uh, an individual or pastor would go to Jude 22 and have some having compassion, making a difference. Because this morning, the title of the message is, Dare to be the difference-making difference. Dare to be the difference-making difference. When I shared with my wife uh, last night what the title of my message was, she says, 
couldn't you make it any easier, simpler to understand? Dare to be the difference-making difference. You see, God's called us out of the world to be light into the world, to be a difference in the world. Not just to be different from the world, but to make a difference in the world in which we live. Have you ever noticed that some passages of Scripture sometimes are very clear and simple to understand? Uh, the passage here this morning that we're going to look at, there's some phraseology, some words, some terms here that maybe aren't quite so easy, but we want to look at them and how we can be a difference-making dis- difference in the life in which you live. Let's begin reading there in verse number 1. Paul, uh, Peter writing here says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, as a result of the inheritance that you're going to receive, as a result of striving to live without spot or without blemish in this world, as a result of the word of God, which is your strength, your power, your ability to stand for the cause of Christ, he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sensual milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom, to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood and offer up uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, unto, uh, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak uh, uh, against you as evildoers, they may bring your good works which ye shall behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be uh, to the king, uh, whether it be to the king as supreme. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful and grateful for your love for us. Thank you for this occasion, this day that has been set aside this first day of the week as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Lord, as we come apart from this world, I pray that we, you would quiet our hearts and our minds to be attentive to the word of God today. Not because of what I'm about to say, but because it's of your word by your spirit. Lord, you have something for us today. I pray that we would go away different than when we came in. I pray that we would determine in our hearts and our minds and our lives to dare to be the difference-making difference in the world in which we live. That we might not just be different from the world, but that we might make a difference in the world in which we live. That we might be that light that shines in a dark world. That we might be that testimony and that witness to bring the lost to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask your richest blessing upon our time. Holy Spirit, meet with her, meet with us as only you can. And I pray that uh, you would be honored, exalted, and glorified today. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Uh, in some passages today, there's difficult things to understand. In the text in verse 4, Peter talks about believers being living stones, built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. There's some symbolism that isn't easy to understand uh, at first, but in the midst of this passage, there are also some plain and straightforward advice on how to live the Christian life. And that's what I like about the Word of God, because there are passages and places within the Word that are a little bit more challenging and difficult to understand, which ought to cause us to dig, to read, to search out, to find out what God intended for us to understand. But then also for those of us that are a little simple, like me, the simpler things, the, the truths that you can grasp hold of and take and live uh, and apply to your life. Here in chapter 2, Peter continues this, uh, his line of thought from the previous chapter. He still is challenging those to whom he is writing that have been scattered abroad because of the persecution to dare to be the difference-making difference. He didn't want them just to be different because of where they were and living the Christian life. He wanted their lives to make a difference. In this message today, it's my desire for us to see and to understand how, sta- uh, how standing for Christ and being different as Christian makes a difference in the world in which we live. So many times as believers, we think our lives are insignificant. That what impact and what touch, what influence do we really have in the world in which we live? And I'm here to declare for you today that Christ saved us, redeemed us, so that we might make a difference in our world, not just be different because of Christ and because of our ordering our steps according to the word of God, but that we might make a difference in the lives of others. In verse 9, Peter uses an interesting term in reference to believers that is translated in the King James Bible as peculiar. He says, in verse number 9, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. The word peculiar here means uniquely different. It doesn't take much to know that as a believer in Christ, an individual that's placed their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ and what he did at Calvary, an individual that's been redeemed, forgiven of their sins, and is now a child of God, it's not hard for that individual and for the world to see that there's a a tremendous difference. We are uniquely different because of, of whom we belong to. We no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He there in that passage of scripture is telling us the kind of difference that we need to be in the world in which we live. And so we are uniquely different because we belong to God. Secondly, we're uniquely different in order that we might make a difference in the world. John 15, verse 19, Jesus Christ said, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. This morning in our uh, uh, Overcomer Sunday School class, uh, I was teaching about why it's important that we take time for God on a daily basis. And we talked about three reasons. Because of the devil, because of our flesh, and because of the world. Man, if if we don't come apart to to get alone with God, we are going to fall apart in the world in which we live. We are inundated on a daily basis with strife, with difficulties, with hardships, with challenges uh, to the evils of this world. One such individual that was a difference-making difference in, in the time in which he lived was Arthur Stace. Don't know if you ever heard of Arthur. Arthur was born in Sydney, Australia on February 9th, 1885. He was the fifth child of alcoholic parents. He was reared in poverty. In order to survive, he resorted to stealing bread and milk and searching for scraps of food in bins. Doesn't sound like much of a life to live. It doesn't sound like as a young child, there was much opportunity for success in his life. 
uh, at a young age with virtually no formal schooling and working in a coal mine, he became a ward of the state. As a teenager, he himself became an alcoholic and subsequently sent to jail at the age of 15. In his 20s, he was a scout for his sisters, not a, a boy scout. He was a scout for his sister's brothels. He enlisted, uh, shortly thereafter, he enlisted in the Australian uh, Imperial Force for World War I, where he suffered re- reoccurring bouts of uh, bronchitis and pleurisy, which ultimately led to his medical discharge. When the stock market of 1929 crashed and the full effects of the Great Depression set in, uh, it produced human misery in Australia on a scale that has not been seen before or since. Therefore, Arthur's uh, uh, fortunes had reached rock bottom, his future. However, the evening of August 6, 1930, Arthur's life changed. That night, he met up with a few of his derelict friends who decided to attend one of RBS Hammond's weekly men's prayer meeting at St. Barnabas's on Broadway. What drew them to the meeting had nothing at all to do with religion. Rather, the word on the street had gotten around that after the meetings, every man got a cup of tea and a rock cake. Reverend Hammond's plea that night was, if any of you men are sick of the lives you are living, there's one who loves you, who will set you free, and his name is Jesus. Though Arthur made no decision for Christ that, in that meeting, he later said that he came under strong conviction of sin and desired to be delivered from its bondage. After drinking his tea and eating his rock cake, he left the hall alone, crossed Broadway, and rock walked into Vic- Victoria Park. There, under a large fig tree, in the dark and, and out of sight, he knelt down and wept. It was there that he cried out a simple prayer, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, uh, Arthur's life began to grow and be nurtured in Christ. Two years later, on November 14, 1932, Arthur was further encouraged by the preaching of evangelist John G. Ridley. Evangelist Ridley shouted out the words in his message that night, Eternity! Eternity! I wish I could shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend it? That night... Arthur Stace left with eternity ringing in his brain and suddenly he began crying and felt the powerful call from the Lord to write eternity all over the streets of Sydney. This one statement powerfully impacted Arthur Stace's life from that point on. Several mornings a week, this man who, without formal education, who could barely write legibly his own name, would leave his wife Pearl in their home around 5 a.m., go around the streets of Sydney and chalk the word eternity on the footpaths, train station entrances and anywhere else he could think. As he walked every so often, he would stop, pull out a piece of chalk, bend down and write on the pavement in beautiful copper plate cursive or script, E-T-E-R-N-I-T-Y. He would move on a hundred yards, then write it again, E-T-E-R-N-I-T-Y. Nothing more, just one simple word. For 37 years, he chalked this one-word sermon more than a half a million times. All the people of Sydney wondered for the longest time who could be, it be that wrote E-T-E-R-N-I-T-Y on the streets of, of their big city. It became a great mystery and everyone was talking about it. For 37 years, Arthur, who became known as Mr. Eternity, would leave his home around 5 a.m. and make his way through the streets and byways of Sydney, Australia, leaving one-word sermons on the walkways for all to see and to consider. 
Countless testimonies have been shared of those who came to faith in Christ because of this powerful one-word sermon. Truly, Arthur Stace was a difference-making difference in the surrounding community and in the city and in the city in the city of Sydney, Australia. Here's an individual without formal education, could barely write his own name legibly. As a matter of fact, he tried to write other things and could not even write them where people could read them. It was only the word eternity. And if you get on the internet, you can see it it written so beautifully in that copper plate cursive. He died in July of 1967 at the age of, of 82. In 1968, the Sydney City Council, what kind of impact did this man have with that one word, this illiterate uh, individual? City Council uh, of Sydney, Australia, in honor of his life, decided to carry on Arthur's one-word sermon, Eternity, by putting down permanent plaques in numerous locations throughout the city. Not only that, but as a tribute to this man known as Mr. Eternity, the Sydney Harbor Bridge was lit up with the word eternity as part of the celebration for the beginning of the year 2000 and the beginning of the new century. I don't know if you saw that, of course, the the Y2K thing, that uh, our TVs were turned on. We wondered if our computer systems were going to carry over and what might happen. Our world might crash. And as we had our TVs turned on, of course, the place that uh, was uh, was first observed was there in Australia. The two main uh, uh, landmarks of Sydney, Australia, are the Opera House and uh, uh, this bridge. And as the fireworks begin to burst and blast in the sky in celebration of of, uh, 2000, the year 2000, around that bridge, the fireworks just were shooting off and great smoke uh, patches were there that filled the sky. But as the smoke cleared the way, the word eternity was written in that copper plate cursive there on that bridge. Not, uh, so what about us? What about our surroundings? The world in which we live? What's the difference making difference that you and I are making in the world in which we live today? To experience this difference making difference, to grow into maturity in the Christian life, Peter declares three things in this passage that we need to do. And we find them here uh, in verses 1 through 11. First of all, number one, we need to be a stranger to danger. We need to be a stranger to danger. Okay, so it rhymes. At least you will remember the mo- this most important and vital point. What do I mean? I, 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 I'm speaking of the ultimate danger for every Christian life and every Christian testimony. We need to be on guard for sin. Peter tells how to keep a safe distance from sin, how to keep a big distance from sinful desires. Notice verse number one. He says, wherefore, after admonishing about, about, about staying pure and being unblemished, after encouraging them with the strength that the word of God can provide for them, he says, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envies and all evil speaking. Jump down to verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. We see here that the word malice means extreme personal hatred. Lay aside that extreme personal hatred. The word guile means deceit. The hypocrisy is false pretense or false appearances. The word envy is talking about jealousies of another's success and prosperity. The evil speakings speaks of slander. Now keep in mind to whom he's writing. He's not writing to unregenerate people. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them these things ought not to be a part of their life. And so therefore, probably these things were a part of some of their lives. And he's cautioning them. He's warning them. If you're going to be the difference making difference in the world where you are, where God has placed you, you need to lay aside these things. 
John put it this way, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And this world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The problem with us and our testimonies and being the difference, making difference in our world is the fact that we've become too attached to the world. We've allowed the influences of the world to be a greater influence upon us than we are upon the world. As we look at the world round about us, we say, oh, wow, the world in which we live. Forget about the world outside the borders of the United States. Look at the, that uh, within the borders of the United States. We see governmentally and we see socially and we see mentally and emotionally in so many different ways our world being turned upside down and, and just a real mess. But we see that John warns and, and, and Peter here in declaring these things to lay these things aside are influential in our lives that draw us away from the Christian life that God would have us to live. How in the world is this even possible? How can we, we lay these things aside? How can we not have the love of the world and the world not so influence us and turn us away from living the life that Christ intended for us? It's found for us in verse number two. He says, wherefore, lay aside all malice and all these other things. But then he says in verse 2, as newborn babes desires and sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You say, well, pastor, you know, that, I've heard that, that passage peach, preached and obviously he's talking about new believers. No, that's not what it says. Oftentimes that's the reference that's made and truly new believers in Jesus Christ, those that are, are newly born again, need to spend time and develop a relationship with the word of God. But that's not what Peter says. He's writing to mature believers. He's writing to those that have been scattered abroad. And where they went, the amazing thing is, is Christ had told them to go into all the world, but they, they were staying at Jerusalem. They loved the little huddle group that they had there in Jerusalem. And Christ sent persecution. God sent persecution upon the believers there at Jerusalem. And that thrust them forth to the, basically the four corners of the world at that time as it was known. And as these believers went, they took their God, they took their worship of him with them and established local churches in, in those areas where they, where they were. And so he's writing to these believers that have now had, through Bible studies, established churches. And he's saying, hey, you need to, in order to lay aside malice and guile and hypocrisy and envies and evil speaking, in order to live the life and be the difference maker, making a difference, that God desired for you to be, you need to desire the word of God and you need to desire it as a newborn child desires his mama's milk. Any woman that's birthed a child and nursed that child knows that when that child learns to, to suck there, to draw that milk out, that, 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 that they latch on and they hold on because uh, they love that, uh, that, that time. There. That's their nourishment. That's their strength that they gain from. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. Hey, you want to lay aside the things of the world? You want victory over the world? You want to be the light? You want to be the difference making difference in the world where you are and where you live? Have a desire for the word of God as a newborn child has a desire for his mama's milk. And so we see Peter's strong admonition for these believers. Avoidance of sin was to have or to possess an insatiable desire for God's word. In the context here, the word desire means so in, uh, uh, to intensely crave possession or to eagerly long after question. Have you, ever have you ever struggled with sinful desires? The answer, we all have. Not just once or twice or not just a few times, not just, you know, occasionally, hey, every day there ought to be those sinful struggles with desire uh, of sinful desires in our life. Maybe it's something that you uh, would never uh, see yourself doing, but 
the desire to do it just won't leave you alone. For example, there are people who would never commit sexual sin, but they are never far from the thought of it. Or there are people who would never seek revenge, but yet they rehearse in their thoughts again and again, day after day, what they ought to say or what they ought to do to the person who offended them. Even though these acts might never be committed and desire alone to commit the sin is enough to destroy your spiritual life and fellowship. The desire alone, let me say that again, even though these acts may never be committed by you or by me, the desire alone to commit the sin is enough to destroy your spiritual life and fellowship. Your thought life, what goes through this this mind, you know, see, and I've said this before, for the, the child of God, the believer, the battle isn't for your soul. The day that you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I know that your blood... Uh, you shed there on Calvary, covers all sin. And I'm asking that you might uh, become my Lord and Savior, take control of my life, be my master. That day that you trusted Christ as your Savior, you established that relationship with God. So the battle no longer is for your eternal soul. But the devil, knowing that he's lost that battle, had, had to find another battlefield, and that battlefield is our mind. You see, I can't see your mind, nor can you see mine. You don't know what's going through my mind, and I don't know what's going through yours. There's a lot of sin that's being committed here that isn't being committed outwardly. But you know what I find? That when those types of things come into my mind and they truly do affect my life, that if I don't cast those things down, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, where he talks about casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing those things into captivity. Hey, we need to do that. We need to be aware that the battle isn't for our soul. The devil isn't trying to destroy us, to to send us to hell, because he can't do that. But if he can control our mind and what we think, and it's going to have an effect upon whether we let our light shine for Christ brightly or whether uh, we're going to let it shine at all. Even though these acts might never be committed, the desire alone to commit the sin is enough to destroy your spiritual life and fellowship. Sinful desires wage war against your soul. And if you give desire free reign, It can take you out of the battle for Jesus Christ. We have to remind ourselves that there are certain things we can't afford to even think about because sinful thoughts fan the flame of sinful desires and sinful desires wage war against our soul. Peter says that we are to view ourselves as aliens. Notice that verse, uh, let's see, down there, verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and and pilgrims, uh, as aliens, as strangers, as foreigners. Our attitude is to be like That familiar course, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through my life. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Have you ever visited a foreign country with customs that seem so strange to you? Now, I've been to several countries and different places around the world. And each country, though there are similarities, there's people there. And they enjoy those people and enjoy some of the same things that we enjoy as here in the United States. But, But there are many customs that they have that are far different than what we have. For instance, in Brazil, I'm told that amid the familiar toppings that people normally eat on pizza, they sometimes like to put scrambled eggs and even bananas on their pizza. Then to top it off, they like to dip that pizza in ketchup. That's definitely not for me. However, whenever I visit a foreign country, as much as I may love the culture and love the people, I'm always regarded as an alien, as a stranger, as a foreigner, because I'm not a natural-born citizen. Here's my point. It's impossible for us to visit a foreign land, a foreign country, and not feel just a little bit out of place. 
After all, we're foreigners in that land and there's another place that we call home. It's the same for us as believers and even more so. The difference between America and Brazil are often viewed merely as cultural. However, the differences between this world and our home in heaven are very vastly different. This world tells us to believe one thing. God tells us to believe another. This world tells us to think one way. God tells us to think another. The world tells us to live one way. God tells us to live another. He's telling us to be a, be a stranger to danger. Don't get too comfortable with the, world, the world's way of thinking and doing. Get far from the, the world. Remove yourself from uh, its ideologies. Keeping a safe distance from sin involves keeping a big distance from sinful desires. Keeping an attitude of alienation from this world's way of thinking and striving to make an effort to live above the crowd. I think the uh, uh, Isaiah, they're talking about being that eagle and rising high above when danger uh, lurks. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to be aware we, of, of our present surrounding. So many times we get up and we go about the routines of our day and we just live our day in an ordinary way because we get so accustomed to how we're living. And we aren't even aware of what's happening in many respects around about us. We aren't even aware or even thinking about being a light, being that testimony for Jesus Christ in the world where he has placed us. I've mentioned numerous times, you don't have to look for opportunity. Many times opportunity comes knocking at your door. It may be through a customer. It may be through a repair individual. It may be through somebody, uh, 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 some family member that has a special need, but yet their greatest need is Jesus. We see that we need uh, to, to respond to the truth of God and God's word. It's an unfortunate fact of life that if you seek to live for God, there will be times when you are accused of either doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing for the wrong reason. When you remain true to your convictions, you'll be accused of being narrow-minded. When you are confident in God's direction for your life, you'll be accused of being arrogant. When you refuse to back down in the face of opposition, you'll be accused of being stubborn. When you experience God's blessing in your life, you'll be accused of doing all of it for your own glory. They will accuse you of doing wrong. Therefore, your challenge, my challenge, our challenge is to live in such a way that their accusations do not have staying power. In other words, they don't stick. We're like Teflon, you know, uh, you know the egg rolls around in the pan. It, it, but Teflon, as great of an invention as it was, it wasn't as great. I, I, could, I could get things to stick to a Teflon pan. But the reality is, is hey, we need to be kind of like the Teflon man in some respects, the Teflon individual, where, where things may hit us, but they're not going to stick. Accusations will always come. The world doesn't like us. People don't love us. And so, therefore, because of our testimony, because of our witness, we need to realize that. You'll be accused from time to time of doing the wrong thing or having the wrong motives, but the emptiness of those allegations will eventually come to light, if not sooner than later. Don't let unfounded accusations prevent you from being the difference, making difference in the world, in the environment where God has placed you. With regard to staying away from sin, uh, Solomon stated it this way to his son in Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. How much clearer does it, does it, can, can, we, can it possibly get for us to, to uh, stay away from sin and now allow it to control our life? We need to be a stranger to danger. The first thing that Peter admonishes us to do is to be a stranger to danger. Stay away from all types and all forms of evil and sin. Secondly, not only must we be a stranger to danger, but secondly, we need to heed the word. We need to heed the word. In other words, get into it. Not just hold it. Not just read it. 
but we need to heed it. Uh, as I shared with our students this morning in the overcomer class, you know, from time to time dealing with the RU students that I do, and many of them come to know Christ if they don't already have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but oftentimes individuals will come and talk to me about some of the challenges and struggles and, and that, they're, that they're facing that they're, with their family, with their work, with their addiction and so forth like that. And, and I'll try to encourage them uh, with the word of God and, and I'll, I'll show them from the word. I'll share scripture with them if I'm talking to them on the phone. And, and oftentimes the response is, I know, pastor. I know, pastor. Yes, pastor. I know, pastor. But then I, I, I dawned on me one day, you know what, I, I hear that, I know, I know, I know. I, I heard, used to hear that from my kids, and I'm sure I said that to my parents when they tried to help me and try to direct me. I know, I, I don't need that. I, I know. But the reality is, is, it's not a matter of what we know, it's a matter of what we do with what we know. We need to do something with it, and when we act upon it, it actually works in our life. People today that say, you know what, I've tried that Christian thing, but that Christian thing didn't work for me. That's because you didn't do the Christian thing. You didn't spend time with God. You didn't establish that relationship. You didn't uh, spend that time in prayer. You didn't call upon him to draw upon his strength, his power and his might. You tried to be that good person, that good Christian person in your own strength, power and might. And you may be able to do that for a short time, but eventually it's going to live, lead to a life of emptiness and, and, and truly uh, at the very best, very shallow life. And so we need to heed the word. We need to get into it. Peter ends chapter 1 with the statement, verse 24, The grass withereth, and the, and the flower thereof falleth away. Verse 25, But the word of the Lord endureth forever. These words are taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse number 8. This reference is not only to Isaiah's prophecy, but the entire Old Testament. And Peter says the me- it also impacts the message of the gospel. There was no New Testament at the time that Peter wrote this letter. Over the next 300 years, the books of the New Testament came together. The church leaders recognized the authority of the gospel and the writings of Paul, Peter, and John. And ultimately, the the New Testament canon was complete. Peter's words can be applied to his own record and to all the New Testament. It is the word of God and it stands forever. You can be assured that this book will stand forever. As I shared with the, the RU students on Friday night, that there is a... Uh, A day of judgment, a day of accountability that we will all stand before the Lord. Those that are saved and children of God and those that are not regenerate are not children of God. We all have our appointment before the judgment bar of God. And in that day, as we stand before him, we will give an account of the things that we've done in our bodies. And the Bible says the books, it doesn't say a book, it says the books will be opened. I believe, obviously, the book of life will be there. I believe the word of God will be there. I believe the book, the book of words will be there. Things that we might have said that in a harsh or mean way or a cursing or whatever it may be that was unforgiven, unrepentant of. I believe there's the book of works as well, how we lived our life and the motives with which we did various things. But the Bible says the books will be open and I believe this book we will stand accountable before as well. And therefore, since we're going to stand accountable for this book, don't you think we ought to know this book? We ought to live this book. We ought to get into this book. We ought to heed this book. In verse 2, Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It is a word that describes a strong desire. Peter is saying that we need to develop a taste for and have a strong longing and loving desire for the word of God. Do you know the best way to do that? The best way to have that longing desire for the word where you want to get up in the morning, you can't wait for that time. I told my class this morning. You remember when, if, you, if you're married, the, the, the woman or the man that you were so interested in, 
that you were eager to spend time with. You, you know, uh, uh, I've shared before that when my wife and I began to date, we didn't start dating. We knew each other uh, throughout, our, throughout our college years. Actually, I was, I was introduced to my wife when I was a freshman at Maranatha, and she was a senior. She lived in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I played football. We were on a, we were on a, a weekend football trip, and we came back. And that evening, we stopped in La Crosse at Temple Baptist Church, and our football team took part in the service, basically took over the service. We sang and, uh, and gave testimony, and one of the coaches preached and so forth like that. At the end of the service, rather than driving the three hours back to campus, uh, for whatever reason, they, we stayed there that night. We were divided up into the different homes. Guess whose home I stayed in? No, it wasn't my wife's. At that time, Pastor Saunders was the youth pastor at that church. I stayed in Pastor Saunders' apartment, he and Normie, just me by myself. Normally we're matched up in twos, but I was there. God was already preparing me for the guy I was going to spend 27 years of my life working for and working with. But not only that, that night after all the guys were divvied up and I was the last one left, it's kind of like being, you know, you know playing, playing baseball and being the last kid picked. And, uh, but he came to me and said, hey, you're going to be staying with my wife and I. And a family in the church that we're close to has invited us to come over for dinner this evening. And that, that family happened to be my wife's family. I didn't know them at that time. I knew her brother because he was on the football team. And they were keeping uh, several of the football players uh, there that night. So we get over there and it came time to sit down to the meal. And as I sit down right across the table, directly across the table from me is my future wife. I wasn't the least bit interested at that particular time because I was dating someone back home. But you know what? God was, introducing, God was introducing all of these people into my life that later, years later, have greatly influenced, molded, and shaped my life. They were being a difference maker at that time, in some respects, in my life. And, uh, and so uh, she came to college and so forth. But it wasn't until, though we sang in choir together and we knew each other, uh, been on choir tour and so forth like that. We never, there, was never, there was never any interest on our part either way to date. But about a month before, was our, we had just finished our last choir tour. And it was just a few days before that tour was to end that all of a sudden I'm sitting eating a meal next to my roommate on tour and I look across the table and once again, my future wife is there. And it was at that point in time, God allowed me to see her in a different way and I thought, wow, you know, there's a beautiful young lady there. And uh, at that point in time, my, my interest began to peak. And I, at that night, I asked her to the banquet, the junior-senior banquet. And from that point in time, we began to spend time together. I couldn't wait for the next time. And I'm sure she couldn't either, that we would, <laughs> that we would be together. You know, we, you know, if you look at from the time that we really started dating until the time that we actually got married, it might have been, as far as the times that we were together, maybe it was 45 days say, well, how in the world could that possibly be? Well, we knew each other through college. We, we already knew each other. And, uh, but at that point in time, there was no sense in wasting any more time. But, uh, but, but you know, we, we dated through that summer. And, of course, I was going to churches trying to raise support to be a missionary, a school teacher there in Nassau. And she was going to uh, Bob Jones University to work on her master's in music education. But when I got on that plane and I landed in Nassau, from that day that I landed there till. The next time I saw her, which was Christmas break, I wrote her every day. I wrote her every day. Now, mind you, I taught school full-time. I coached full-time. I walked home five miles after practice because I had no car. 
and then I would do my schoolwork, grab a bite to eat, do my schoolwork, get ready for the next day. And sometimes it would be midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. I would be writing this letter to her because I, I committed to write this letter. Why? Because I had a passion, a yearning, a desire, a love for this woman. And that's really what it needs to be. That's the kind of love that we need to have for our God. Why do we, our relationships here, we love more than we love the most important relationship of all. And so we need to heed the word. And Peter says we need to desire to have a strong, longing, loving desire for the word. The best way we can do that is to read it, spend time in it. I've learned that the more time I spend, the more time I want to spend in the word. There's no such thing as a saturation point. We become too saturated with the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said, nobody outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. It's amazing to me that passages that I read, understood, believed, and followed when I was younger continue to speak to me today, decades later, on a different level. Remember, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Uh, you know, as a youth pastor, I, I, and, and for our graduates, I'd write in the front of their Bible that, with that very statement, this book will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. And you might want to write that in the fly leaf of your Bible. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it that will remind you of God's love for you and that you need to reciprocate by having that love for God back. I read the Bible when I was sad. but uh, I, uh, I read the Bible when, I, when I'm sad, but not because it confirms my feelings of sadness. I read the Bible when I'm sad because it challenges me to think and to view a new way about my life and my life circumstances. When I'm down, sometimes I'm having a pity party. Sometimes I, I, I feel real sorry for myself. You don't know what I go through. You know, that's what I think anyway. Nobody knows. Nobody really fully understands. And the reality is, is, hey, God understands. My perspective is on me. It's not on God. And so we see when I'm sad, it changes the way that I view my life and my life circumstances. When uh, The same can be said of when I'm angry, frustrated, depressed, confused, and so on. When I read the word... It changes my outlook on life. If you struggle with depression, get in the word of God. God, I need you today. That's my prayer every day. God, I need you today. I needed you yesterday, but I need you more today than I needed you yesterday. You know, struggles of yesterday, they're still nagging at me today. Lord, I need you today. Help me And walking with you. A Scottish preacher once said, the book to read is not the one that thinks for you, but the one that makes you think. No book in the world equals the Bible for that. He's right, you know. Reading the Bible causes you to think about your life, about what you're doing and where you're going. It helps you in every matter, situation, circumstance, and issue of life by instructing you in how to live right. This book will tell you every facet of your life and how you ought to live. Tim, uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, that the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Doctrine, that's what's right. Reproof, that's what's not right. Correction, that's how to get right. Instruction of righteousness, that's how to stay right. That's why we have the word of God. That's why David wrote, Thy word have I hid, or I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's also why Peter wrote about those who don't believe. It is a stumbling block, a rock of offense. The word of God is a stumbling block and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient to experience and to be equipped as a difference making dif- as the difference making difference in your world get into the word uh, saturate your life with it it will change you it will also help you in in taking this last step the first thing is to be a be a stranger to danger the second second step is the need to heed the word and lastly stay connected to Christ stay connected to Christ
This difference-making difference that I'm talking about is something we receive from him. Peter is challenging these believers as well as us today to know who they are and who we are in Christ. In this passage, he tells them that they are living stones to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And that's found there in verses 4 and 5. To whom coming as unto living stones, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house a holy and holy priesthood and offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter would use the, uh, this metaphor since uh, Jesus had earlier said unto him, uh, I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build the church. The name Peter means small or little stone. Peter understood that Jesus was not saying that he was the foundation of the church. He knew that Jesus was the rock, the foundation of the church. Peter understood that, that he, like us, is one of the living stones that make up the building of the church. He's saying, you are a stone. You play, your place is in, building, is in God's building. By itself, a stone can not do much good. It can serve as a paperweight, and that's uh, about it. But with others, it can be a part of a majestic structure. Peter is saying, that's who you are. Your role is to be a living stone in God's building. Not only does Peter call us living stones, but he also calls us in holy priesthood. The Bible teaches the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, uh, which means that we are all uh, have equal access to God, and we don't need a, a human intermediary uh, in our relationship to God. You can go directly to God. You don't need to go to a preacher. You don't need to go to a priest. You can go directly to God yourself. Peter talked about the priesthood of all believers in the context of our role in the church. Yes, we all have equal access to God, and it's important to remember that. It's also important to remember that we all equally belong to one another. The Latin word for priest is pontific, uh, pontific which, which means bridge builder. The priest is an individual believer who builds a bridge for others to come to God. We are all bridge builders in our relationship with one another as, re, as well as our relationship to the world, bringing others to God. And every Christian has the privilege and responsibility of bringing others to the Savior. Peter also says that we are in holy priest believers, uh, are, off, are to offer uh, as holy priest, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He is talking about the content of our lives, our worship, our prayers, our service to him and to others. All ministry, all mercy, all compassion is sacrificial offering of our praise and glory to God. Experiencing the difference, making difference requires that we stay connected to Christ. Not only be a stranger to danger, not only see that we have to have the need to heed the word of God, but to stay connected to Christ, stay close in relationship to him. Stop calling yourself a failure, a loser, an underachiever, a hothead, disorganized, undisciplined, lazy, and every other bad name that you may be tempted to pin on yourself. Give yourself a new label. You are a stone, not just a stone. You're a living stone, part of God's temple. You are a priest. You're a bridge builder. You belong to God. You are a chosen generation. The Bible says in verse number nine, notice, but you are a chosen generation. He's speaking of us. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Hey, that's not what the world would call us, but that's what God calls us. A royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation uh, there, um, that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Uh, 
Therefore, being the difference-making difference, therefore, be the difference-making difference by staying connected to Christ. This is, the, is only established when we pursue an intimate and personal relationship with Him. There in order, therefore, in order for us to be as believers, to be that difference-making difference in our world, we need to be a stranger to danger by staying far away from sin and all of its allurements. We need to heed the word and its instruction uh, continually. And we need to stay connected to Christ. We need to know who we are in him. Christians are to be different. They're to be different in every way, in such a way that they make a difference in the world in which we live. Do you want to be a, uh, make a difference in the world? Then follow these simple truths. Be a stranger to danger. Realize your need to heed the word. Stay connected to Christ. This can be a true reality for all of us if we will avoid and fend off all sinful thoughts and desires. Remember that you are only visiting this world. We're only passing through. And therefore, you must make an effort to live above reproach. It may not always be easy, but by his grace, each and every one of us can do it. Remember Paul's encouraging words to the church at Corinth when he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Jude also reminded us of his admonition there in verses 22 and 23 when he said, it, when he said and of some have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment, garment spotted by the flesh. Determine today that you're going to be the difference-making difference in your home, in your school, on your job, in your church, and in your community by being that, danger, that stranger to danger, by heeding his word, and by staying connected to Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful and grateful for the gracious and mighty God that you are. Thank you for the cause, for the purpose, for the reason that we assemble ourselves here today because of you, because of what you did at Calvary and going uh, all the way there to suffer, bleed, and die to, to make an atonement, a payment for man's sin so that we could establish a personal relationship with you, that we could know you in a personal and intimate way so that we could walk with you, so that we could be led of you and guided so that we could be blessed of you. Lord, help us as your children to be a difference-making difference in the world in which we live, in the homes where you've placed us as, as husbands, as wives, as moms and dads, as children. Help us to be a difference-making difference in our schools and on our jobs, in our church and within our community. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't wait for somebody to step up and and, and, and do the job, but Lord, that we would volunteer, that we would step in and as you lead and direct our lives and as you place us where you've placed us, that we might be that shining light that beacons the, the gospel to a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray that you would just encourage our hearts to, to, to be a stranger to danger, to stay away from sin. Help us not to toy, help us not to play with it, help us to, to not be fooled into thinking that we can get away with it and that it won't affect and impact our life or it's so very subtle and sly. Lord, help us to heed your word. There's no doubt we, we week after week, hear teaching and preaching from the word of God, whether it be from this pulpit here in the classroom or by our radio or TV or through a magazine or paper that we might be reading. We hear the word of God oftentimes. We know the word, but the problem is, is oftentimes we're not heeding it. We're not applying it. We're not living it. Help us to make that application in our life so that we can stay closely connected to you. The closer that we are to you, the farther we're going to be away from sin. And so, Lord, in, in, in that way, by being a stranger to danger, by heeding the word and by staying close to you, we can be the difference-making difference in the world in which we live. Not just be different, we can be making a difference. Thank you for the testimony of the life of Arthur Stace, 
relatively an uneducated man, and yet uh, through the many hardships of life, yet he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that day that he heard that word eternity, it, it rang forever in his life. And as a result, he made known the consideration for people to think about their eternity. And as a result, thousands have been brought to Jesus Christ. Help our life to have a similar impact in the lives around about us. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, maybe the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart here today. Maybe he's spoken to you about the fact that you, you need to be that difference-making difference. Maybe in your home. Maybe that's where it begins for you. Maybe it's in your school. Maybe it's on your job. Maybe it's here in this church. Maybe it's within the community, wherever it might be. You say, Pastor, the Spirit of God has spoken to me. Not about just being different, but about being a difference, making difference in the world in which I live. Pastor, the Spirit of God has spoken to my heart. Here's my hand. Would you pray for me anywhere, anywhere around this auditorium today? Thank you. There in the back, in the center, on my right. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Just slip it right up. Put it right back down. Maybe you're here today and say, Pastor Scott, I don't know this different difference-making person. I don't know Jesus Christ. I know about him. I know what he came to do. But, you know, I've, there, there's never been a time in my life when I personally responded to, to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to ask him to come into my life, to be my personal Lord and Savior, to transform me, to, 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 to make me his child. Today, Pastor Scott, I realize that there, that's a desperate need in my life, to know Christ, to become his child and to live for him, that I might too be that difference-making difference in the world in which I live. Pastor Scott, I'm not saved, but I sure would like to be anyone like that here today. Would you simply raise your hand, put it up, put it right back down, I'll not come to you, call your name, or embarrass you in any way. That's not my intent, but to pray for you, anyone at all. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for your word, your precious holy word. Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't disregard it. Lord, as it sits on, in our vehicles, as it sits on the counters and nightstands beside our bed day after day and not even being open, Lord, it, it can't make an impact, a difference in our lives, and therefore we can't make a difference. Help us to fall in love with you and with your word all over again. Thank you for these that indicated by raised hand that your spirit has spoken to their heart about being a difference-making individual where they are in, in the world in which they live. I pray that whatever they might need to do to, to secure that and seal that decision with thee, whether it be coming to the altar here and, and renewing that, that commitment, that decision to you or where they're seated or wherever it might be, I pray that they would not put off that decision. And though no hands were raised for salvation, Lord, in a crowd this size, chances are there's someone here that for whatever reason wasn't comfortable uh, in raising their hand. And I can understand that. But Lord, I pray that they might seek one of us out afterwards that we might be able to take them, have the privilege to show them from the Bible, your whole word, how they can become that glorious child of God. And know for sure that in the day they die, heaven can be their home too. Not because of who they are or what they are, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did at Calvary. Bless now this invitation time. For your glory and your honor, we pray in your precious name. Amen.